Job ready? Employer says yes. This programme is presented by Eduvate, education and innovation. Hello, today I'm talking with Alexander Lowry, who is Director of Masters in Finance Programme at Gordon College in Massachusetts. Hello, Alexander, how are you today? I'm great, Jonathan. How about yourself? Thank you. I'm excellent. I'm really interested. How did you become a a Director of a Masters in Finance Programme? A bit of a circuitous route if I had been planning it out from the beginning of my career, but as I look back, they were all great stepping stones. When I left university, I started out in management consulting. I worked for a firm called PA Consulting Group, which was headquartered out of London. I joined in New York, got a transfer to headquarters, worked in London for seven years, and spent a dozen years between New York and London for them. And after I'd had a good stint in management consulting, I decided I wanted to work on Wall Street. And I used an MBA program. I went to work as the opportunity to make that switch. It's a classic approach people will take if they're doing a career change. And then from there, I joined JP Morgan. So worked in a couple of roles, setting up their new oversight and control function for asset management, which is a unit set atop audit, finance, legal, and risk before working as deputy COO of the U.S. private bank and then deputy COO of the, the private foundation for the bank. That's quite a that's quite a CV because J.P. Morgan is not a small insignificant bank. Yeah, it's a it's a Fortune 500 company, but it's actually five Fortune 500 companies within one. Oh, really? Good grief! And tell me about that. You were deputy chief operating officer of the philanthropic foundation. Yes, that's correct. So. If you want to think of it as JP Morgan is one of the top 20 givers of money in America. So we do about $240 million a year, and that's around 40 countries around the world. And most of the money matches our footprints, right? So we have a giant footprint out of the UK, uh, New York, Chicago, a couple other the major centers are the majority of the funding, but we do a lot of our efforts in a lot of the local communities as well. And it tends to be focused on a few main areas. So it's a um, places where we know we can have impact based on our background experience. So some of that is in financial literacy and analysis. It's also in community development and workforce improvement. So it tends to match with a lot of the work we do with the companies and the governments that we work with around the world. So what sort of, a, I don't want to say skill set because it seems to me to be more than a skill set. It seems to be a, a person set as well. So what sort of a, person goes into a job like that? So for me, I think the COO skill set is directly comparable to my management consulting skill set to, and I will back that track to my education. So I went to Haverford College outside of Philadelphia, which was a great liberal arts education. So it's the old Renaissance approach where you learn a little bit about everything as opposed to being sort of very specialized coming out of, say, Warden undergrad, where you're getting a bachelor's in business administration and you were very focused. And management consulting, to my mindset, is liberal arts education uh, in a professional environment. Now, you have different people with expertise in different industries and sectors, and you begin to specialize, but people need to be able to research and communicate and write and do the strategy and have a convincing argument in front of a client. So you're taking all of those skill sets, and to me, that's a bit of a COO. So a COO needs to be um, 
a mile wide and an inch deep because huh. you're covering so much ground and you have to do it on so many levels from the very beginning of strategy all the way to detailed implementation and the different programs that you're managing between them require different expertise and skills at different points along the way. So I thought it was fascinating how much you're overseeing your have. So taking on that uh, notion of being a mile wide and an inch deep, is that the sort of uh, approach that you're taking into academia uh, uh, to head up this organization? Because I'd have thought that if you are saying that on your CV, hello, I'm a mile wide and an inch deep, academia will have a particular reaction to that. That's a great, great question. So I think there are different roles. Let's let's break academia down. So you are a subject matter expert, and that's a professor in mine, right? So yeah. uh, whether you are biblical studies or you're a subset of biology, whatever it might be, you are a specific person who has studied your skill set for 10, 20, 30 years. You're a world-class expert in your specific niche within those. Uh, that is not a mile wide and inch deep, of course. That's the exact opposite. But for someone like myself, who is dual hatting between role of professor and directing the program, I need to do both. So I have my areas of expertise in finance where I'll be teaching in the program. But then there are also all of the various aspects that I have to oversee around the program. So you can think of it as three ways. I've got my recruitment and awareness efforts in the beginning to bring the students in. And in the middle, I have all of the aspects of setting up and running the program, the administrative stuff, if you want to think of it that way. And in the back end is all the career services, job placement activities, engaging alumni to help people be successful after they've learned their education to get into the workforce. So some of those aspects lend itself to being able to cover so much ground. And of course, you're, when I say an inch deep, uh, that's a bit jokingly, because as you're working on each project, you may have to drop down into great detail to solve them. But basically, I need to be able to oversee everything with a basic knowledge between them. And some I'll just go a lot deeper. In order to provide leadership in a kind of a way in academia, as far as that sure. is understood. Yeah, I understand that. That that makes sense. So describe for me the typical sort of student that now comes to your course. We are anticipating we'll have about three different types will be to be very attractive for and that's because we have both part-time and full-time versions so when i think about the full-time version if i describe that first we will have people that come direct from undergrad and also people who come say two to seven years after undergrad and let me just explain each so we will have some students the easiest way to think about this is a master's in finance and if mm -hmm. someone can wrap their head around it you will have people interested either in being a cpa and maybe they started in an undergrad program as a getting their graduate graduating with a bachelor's degree in accounting but to sit for the cpa exam they need to have 150 credit hours so they can gain those additional hours with us and then take the exam there'll be other students who like myself started out perhaps as a history major or a political science major have a quantitative bent and decide late in their undergraduate years that they want to be in business or finance but need a, a specialization that an employer would say I realize you're very smart and now you know the material, so I'll hire you. I like your masters. There'll be other people that perhaps say they were an undergrad finance major or economics major, decide they want to take the CFA exam. They can get their master's degree while studying for that and graduate with this amazing set of credentials. An employer would say, you're going to be fantastic and top companies would be interested in you. So we think there's a lot of different types of people coming straight out of undergrad that would benefit coming straight to our program. We also think there'll be people maybe two to seven years after their undergraduate work. And at that point, the typical approach, like I talked about myself, someone going to Wharton for an MBA, 
A lot of people want to go to a top school, get that great name and go out into the world. And that makes total sense if you're a career switcher. Like I talked about going from management consulting into finance. But if you started out in finance and you already know you're the right place for where you want to be, now you've got a big decision to make. You don't need a summer internship in between. You're already in the industry. And maybe you don't need to spend two years at a higher cost. The average cost for an MBA is something about $140,000, and it's yeah. two years of your life. Obviously, you have an opportunity cost of not earning a salary during two yeah, years. Sure. If you could do a one-year master's, which is a less than a quarter of that price, I feel that's a very compelling value proposition where you're still getting a master's, you're still standing out from the crowd, and you're already on your way. So those are the two full-time programs. And there's also the part-time program, which we think people living in the greater Boston area, and that's a, a wide net, even people up in Rhode Island who want to come down to do it, can fit it into their lifestyle at one night a week. So you're doing it two years, one night a week, and it still fits with your lifestyle, seeing your family, keeping your current job, advancing your career. And some people need a master's to get promoted, or maybe they're already in, say, the back office of JP Morgan and want to get to the front office. And there's a couple different reasons it would work for people to do the part-time version as well. Looking at this from the perspective of the Eduvate platform, which of course uh, promotes online education for people uh, in a kind of age range of 16, 17, 18, 19, people embarking on their career. What from the perspective of your position uh, heading up a, a master's program in finance, would you be saying on the issue of online education and on the issue of early engagement? So there are two great questions, Jonathan. Let me take the online one first. So from my perspective, education is moving to online from the perspective of it needs to be convenient. People in China or California who would be excited about having a master's education need it to work for them. Maybe there's nothing nearby where they live or their schedules don't work. And I'm definitely looking out several years thinking, I want that component. So for example, I was talking with my boss, the dean, the other day saying, how do we build this in a way that we can help people that are graduating early in American universities? There's a big push now among students to graduate less debt. So instead of graduating four years, they'll try to graduate in three and a half. So we're thinking you have students, maybe they only have one or two classes left, have some bandwidth. Could we allow the first semester to be online remote from them as they're finishing up their other degree and then perhaps come up here and take the rest of us full time person? face-to-face. -face. I think that's how we'll start. Hmm. Eventually, I, I do want to have an online component because it's about fitting it into people's busy lifestyles these days. That's what technology allows us to do. So I think there's going to be a lot of people around the world saying, I want to be able to do something. How do I do it? And education is remiss if we do not move to allowing people to be able to do it at their own time. And I, I think your second question was about how do we help younger people sort of begin to figure out where they're going and how they want to get there. Is that right? Yes. Okay, so from my point of view, there's a couple things that are key. Um, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you have to excel and be excellent in it. And everyone sees things as a stepping stone and they want to know, what do I have to do today to achieve X, Y, Z? Uh, I would always caution people, you can't know exactly what you want to do for your future because you haven't tried it. You have to be able to experiment and try different things, which is one of the things I love about Educate is you are sharing with people different opportunities, giving them peaks behind the curtain so they can say, oh, I think I'm more interested in this. I should dabble in it and try it out. And then also learning about other areas they might be interested in. The analogy for me would be when someone goes to business school, it is an exciting and fascinating place. Imagine you walk in your first day of work. The world is your oyster. You'd be bouncing around like a ping pong ball 
I can be a financial advisor and go to management consulting. I can do a tech startup. I can be a venture capitalist. And you have to begin to think about ahead of time, just as you're helping people do now, here are careers that not only interest me, but my skill sets are aligned with as well. So uh, I might have wanted to be a doctor and follow my dad's footsteps, but I didn't have the skill set to do that. That would not have been a smart career for me. It was because I got to see him in his operating environment to realize that was not the right place for me. So I would encourage people to take advantage of your service to say, I can talk to experts in the field. I can listen to lectures like people who have done it before and see whether that fits for me. If I had followed in my father's footsteps, I would have been a violinist, but he <laughs> saw very early that that was not going to be the case, maybe age eight. So do you find young people nowadays different? I mean, they're going to have to face a different kind of future than you faced. Do you find them in themselves different from, say, what you were when you were 18, 19 years old? I do in the sense of there's a lot of talk about different generations and different approaches. Uh, you know, people talk about the millennials a lot. I was the cusp of a previous generation where you just sort of put your head down, you worked hard, and you waited for your turn. And the next generation will have a different approach still, uh, whether it's giving back and being focused on doing good for the world. And the reality is the workplace always has to change and adapt. And that's in parallel with how technology is changing everything. It's fascinating to me that I don't even need to take my computer home because my iPhone is a computer and I can do whatever I need to there, which means that I can have great flexibility in my job of disappearing to go to uh, time with my daughter, but I can then at night be able to be as if I was back at my desk online getting work done. So for me, it's how do we educate people to be able to take advantage of those opportunities. So as we think about preparing our students to come out of the program, clearly ensuring their technology savvy, but also talking about what it's like to be a manager and how do you help the other people that you're working with, both above and below you, people from older generations, people younger generations coming behind you. How do you integrate that? Because at the end of the day, we want to help people to have that great work-life balance and a great work-life integration and an approach for their life that's going to work for them as much as helping them find the right job. These are intriguing issues. Where do you put uh, artificial intelligence, roboticization, all of that into the world that you're talking about? Well, when we talk about finance, there's no question about how the world has changed these days. So you don't need a thousand people sitting on a trading desk because mostly you're having people that are coding the algorithms and the robots that are doing the trading for you. Um, let's talk about Bitcoin, for example, like that Bitcoin technology is going to revolutionize finance. That blockchain is really incredible stuff. And you're about to see, I think it's this week, they're going to launch the first, is it blockchain ETF? And that's going to be incredible. And you've got a lot of companies that are very wary about Bitcoin today, and perhaps rightfully so, because there's a chance for nefarious purposes to be using it. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't have a purpose. It doesn't mean that there isn't a way that we can fit it and tie it in. So you've got a lot of companies who are behind the ball scrambling to catch up to it. So you think about artificial intelligence, it's going to continue to change finance. We could talk about the uh, micro trading algorithms and how people are, are flipping stocks in seconds. Maybe not. that's not the best way to be using the technology. But the point is, it is changing everything. So you have some of the old uh, legendary hedge funds now are even employing less of the smartest people in the room, and they're putting them up against the robots and the outputs from those are being compared against each other to make sure they're coming out with the right approach. So it's anyone who isn't adapting to technology is definitely falling behind the curve. 
So finally, building on that, what do you see as the most important things that young people should be grasping about the world that they're going to face? Their not so much long-term future, but their short to medium-term futures in terms of their employability. So I think I'll come back to what we talked about at the beginning. So um, I've described myself as sort of a COO skill set, mile-wide, inch-deep. And in general, the, there are two different types of people. There are generalists and specialists. Most people, when they're hiring, are looking for specialists. So someone who can solve XYZ problem or is a genius at ABC, and that's what they're looking for to fill a seat. And even when you're more senior in a career, even a COO, you can only be a COO of a financial firm if you already have that expertise to understand and hit the ground running. So generalists are not generally the people who get hired. So even when I talk about myself and that COO skill set, you still have the background industry knowledge. So I think people have to get a, an understanding of who they are and where their strengths are, combine that with their interests, because you can't make up passion. If you're very excited about something and you're very good at it, that's what's going to propel you forward in your career. And in some ways, Edubate's platform is really good at giving a sense to people, this is what's required of a role. Think about how that matches with where your strengths and your interests are. And that's probably a great way to be starting out. I've been talking to Alexander Lowry in Massachusetts at Gordon College. He's heading up a brand new MBA in finance and organization. Alexander, it's been a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much. Good afternoon. Thank you, Jonathan. You'll find us online at eduvate.biz. Job ready. Employer says yes. Yes.